Jayam Vishnupad, Paramahamsa, Parivrajakacharya, Asasara Satashishi Madhusavangri, Sesti Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. August 13th, 2013, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikit Saved, Text 8. Gantum Kritamatir Brahman Dwarakam Ratamastita Upale baby davantim Utarambaya vivalam Gantum Just desiring to start Kritam Ati Having decided Brahman, O oh Brahmana, Dwark, Dwark, oh, I'm sorry, Dwarkakam, towards Dwaraka, Ratam, on the chariot, Astitaha, seated, Upalebe, saw Abhidavantim coming hurriedly Uttaram Uttara Baya Vivalam being afraid just to end beg the permission and blessings of my seniors in speaking on this class. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. As soon as he seated himself on the chariot to start for Dwarka, he saw Uttara hurrying toward him in fear. Purport. All the members of the family of the Pandavas were completely dependent on the protection of the Lord. And therefore the Lord protected all of them in all circumstances. The Lord protects everyone, but one who depends completely upon him is especially looked after by the Lord. The father is more attentive to the little son who is exclusively dependent on the father. Gantum krita matir brahman dwara kamratamashtitaha upalebde bidavantim uttarambaya vivalam as soon as he seated himself on the chariot to start for Dwarka, he saw Uttara hurrying towards him in fear. <laughs> so it's funny just reading this translation. I was thinking, so Krishna's sitting down on the chariot ready to go for Dwarka, and he has his plan to go to Dwarka, and then one of his devotees needs his help, and so he adjusts his plan. So this, of course, happens to all of us as well. 
we talk about the plan of the Lord, but the Lord is even adjusting his plan according to the needs of the devotees. And sometimes when we make our plan and somebody then says, wait, I need your help. We're like, oh, but I have my plan. <laughs> but the devotee, it follows in the footsteps of the Lord. And Krishna adjusts his plan to take care of Uttara and then to listen to Kunti and so forth. So here again, we're talking about protection. And in the verse I spoke on last time, Srila Prabhupada was talking about material protection for the sake of spiritual life and how the members of society protect each other. Here he's speaking about how all of us are under the protection of the Lord. Completely dependent. All the members of the family, the Pandavas, were completely dependent, Prabhupada says, on the protection of the Lord. And Prabhupada also says, the father is more attentive to the little son, who is exclusively dependent on the father. Says the Lord protects everyone, but one who depends completely upon Him is especially looked after by the Lord. So, this complete dependence and protection of the Lord is, we talked about it the other day, but this is one of the six items of surrender to see the Lord as my exclusive protector. I am only protected by the Lord and the Lord can protect me as he likes. So devotees generally have a lot of questions on this topic that at least I get asked again and again and again. One is, what does it mean to have exclusive dependence on the Lord? Does this mean that I do nothing to protect myself, to defend myself? Or do I I just depend? Or do I depend and defend? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Depend and defend or just depend. Depend and defend or just depend. And we're going to also look at at the end of the class, what does it mean to just depend? Or even to depend and defend. Does it mean I ask? Like Uttar is just about to do? Or does it mean that I don't ask at all? that I just let Krishna decide what I need and give me protection. So we're going to look at this in terms of body, mind, intelligence, false ego, and the soul. So first let's look at it in terms of the body. When do we both depend and defend? Here we have this example of Uttara. So Uttara is making an attempt to defend herself and her embryo. She's not doing nothing. She's, she's making some attempt. But at the same time, she's depending on Krishna, and she's making an attempt to defend on Krishna. She's, she's taking some action. She's running towards Krishna, and the next verse she's going to glorify him, and the verse directly after that, she's going to say, please protect my embryo. It's interesting, she's going to say, you can kill me if you want, but at least protect my embryo. So certainly one time in which we make an endeavor to defend as well as to depend is when we have to protect the body of others who are under our care. So in terms of bodily protection, Prabhupada will make the point in upcoming purport that parents have a great obligation to protect the bodies of their children. In the last few days here at my son's house, a number of their children have been very sick, very, very sick with quite high fevers, and one of, them, one of their teenagers 
got such a high fever that he became delirious. He became paranoid, delirious, and it was it was very, a very heavy and intense situation. And we made attempts to defend him and protect him, as if all the children who are sick, we're getting medicine for them and different herbs, and we're making sure the fever doesn't get too high, and they eat the right food, and. You know, we ourselves are sacrificing our sleep and so forth and so on, and doing a lot of extra things. And you know, uh, we're making—we're not just saying, "Oh, we're just going to depend on Krishna. We're not going to make any effort to defend and protect." You know, there are some religious groups that say when your child is sick, that all you do is pray. Of course, that's also making some attempt. Like here, Uttara is making some attempt. She's, she's praying to the Lord, she's asking the Lord, and she's not just praying to the Lord, do whatever you want. She's saying, please, Lord, save my child. So there are some groups that say that's all you can do. You can't do anything else. But that's not our philosophy. Our philosophy is that you can also take, and you should also take, material means to protect the bodies of others under your care. In fact, the Kshatriyas... This whole section of Bhagavatam is dealing with kings and queens. and They were taking protecting the bodies of their citizens. They were providing their citizens with clean water, with healthy food. They were even, by their piety, able to regulate the weather. They made sure there were parks and gardens. With, I mean, so many things. That they were taking care of the citizens on a bodily platform. But the devotee who does that does it with dependence on Krishna, knowing that I alone am not capable of providing for the bodies of anyone. That my wife may be under my care, my children, my citizens, my employees, whatever. I may have people whose bodily care is my responsibility, but I realize that without the grace of the Lord, I cannot do anything. As Prahlad Maharaj said, that doctors cannot save a patient that parents alone cannot protect their children. Obviously, if we could, then our children would never get sick in the first place. They'd never get injured in the first place. But we certainly, you know, if our child falls off their bicycle, we don't just stand there and pray while they're bleeding to death, you know. We, we do something that's part of our service. And we do that as part of our service. We were reading in Sharanagati about the Lord is my maintainer and the Lord is my protector. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur says like this. He says that uh, that I am taking care. Let's see if I can find this. He said, within my mind, I've always been anxious for the maintenance of my wife and children, my own body and relatives. How will I earn money? How will I acquire fame? How will I arrange the marriages of my sons and daughters? Now through self-surrender, I have been relieved of all anxiety, O Lord. You will surely provide for the maintenance of your old household. He says, what is a tiny soul actually able to do unless you act? The jiva can only desire to act unless you fulfill his desire by your own sweet will. He cannot do anything. So Bhaktivinoda says, that I am taking care of my family members as a service to you. says, whatever care I take of them is simply my service to you. So that is the mood of the devotee. The mood of the devotee is, whatever service I do is just for you. 
He says, no longer confident of my own strength, I become solely dependent on your will. But he also says, I will earn money and maintain your household. But he's doing that with the concept uh, that Krishna is actually the doer. So, yes, I will earn money and maintain my household. Yes, I will take my child to the doctor or give them proper medicine, but with knowing that Krishna is the only actor. And another example of this is Arjuna on the battlefield. And here, Arjuna on the battlefield is not only uh, protecting the bodies of others, but also his own body. So Arjuna is making an effort when he's fighting to prevent his own body from being injured or killed. And he's definitely making an effort. Prabhupada says many times that Krishna doesn't say to Arjuna, just lie down and go to sleep on the chariot and I'll fight for you. But he's doing it with total dependence on Krishna. So both depend and defend, depend and defend. And we found when Srila Prabhupada was sick, he would go to the, the doctor sometimes at least. He would take at least Ayurvedic medicine. Shruti Kirtipu would tell us that Prabhupada would adjust his diet that if he felt some disease, he would adjust his diet. Uh, we know when Prabhupada was gored by a bull, he went to go see a doctor. It was fact, I think it was there that he was introduced to Sumati Muraji. So those are some circumstances, both when, def- when defending the bodies of others under our care and when defending our own body, where we will both depend on Krishna and defend. With full dependence on Krishna, with full knowledge that Krishna is the only protector. No one else is a protector. I am not a protector. Still, as my service, I defend the bodies of others and I defend my own body. There's also some instances, though, where devotees do not defend their own body. They only depend. And examples of this are Ambarish, when he's being attacked by Muni. He makes no effort whatsoever to defend his own body. He simply and only depends on Krishna, Krishna, if you want him to kill me or not. Of course, in that circumstance, he's feeling himself an offender. And in the role of a Ksatriya and seeing Dravasa in the role of a Brahmana, and as his guest, his mood is the proper dharmic thing to do in such situation is to make no attempt at bodily defense. So there, Ambarish was relinquishing all bodily defense and leaving his protection or demise in Krishna's hand with no effort on his part because he understood that to be the proper dharma. We have other situations like Prahlad Maharaj when his father was trying to kill him and Haridas Thakur when he was beaten in the marketplaces who also made no attempt to defend their own bodies. And they simply depended on whether Krishna wanted to kill them or slay them. Mare Krishna Rake, Ke Rake Krishna Rake. Sampadevi Padeji Vane Marani. Now, in those two circumstances, unlike Ambarish Maharaj, they simply had no means of bodily defense. So Prahlad Maharaj was a five year old boy. His father was in charge of the universe and all the police force. Haridas Thakur was being beaten by the government officials. So there was no recourse. There was no possibility of doing something to defend their bodies. So in Ambarish Maharaj's case, he could have. After all, he was a great Kshatriya. He could have done that. He did have the means, but he intentionally chose not to use those means because he felt that in that situation, Dharma would be violated if he did so, that he didn't have the Dharmic right to attack a Brahmana as a Kshatriya, nor did he have the Dharmic right to attack his guest, especially when he felt that he was at fault. 
But in Prahlad Maharaj and Haridas Thakur's cases, what we're looking at is not a question of dharma, but just a question of practical situation. They, they, the means was not at their disposal. So now let's look at mind. In what situations would we both def- depend on Krishna and defend, and in what situation would we only depend? So depending and defending our mind. I was thinking about Bhagavad Gita 2.62, where Krishna says that by contemplating the objects of the senses, one develops attachment by such attachment. One develops lust. From lust, anger arises. From anger, bewilderment of memory. When memory is bewildered, intelligence is lost, and then one falls into the material pool. So the devotee makes an effort to defend their mind by not contemplating the objects of the senses. And this is why the Shastra is warning us not to read ordinary crow literature. In fact, in the other item of surrender, rejecting everything that's unfavorable and accepting everything that's, unfav- that's favorable, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says that he will not read or listen to anything that is against the principles of pure devotion. Now, of course, if you have a job as a lawyer, you've got to read the law books. I'm sure Bhaktivinoda Thakur in his job as a judge was reading the law books. But he's talking about reading things by the Mayavadis or ordinary uh, romance literature. So that is, we have to make an effort on our part. That requires some effort, especially in this modern Kali Yuga where sense objects for our contemplation are constantly being thrust in front of our senses. You know, it's just constantly that we were uh, driving the other day. I was driving with my daughter and son-in-law who recently spent about seven years in India. And as we were driving, there was one woman we passed on the street who was not dressed very nicely. And my son-in-law said, you don't see that in Mayapur, in Mayapur Dhamma. You don't see women dressed like that. It's not that that kind of distraction isn't there. Of course, you do in Mumbai, but not in Mayapur. But just like with Ajamil, you know, he saw this uh, low-class man and woman engaged in sexual behavior in a public place. In a civilized society, that doesn't happen. In our modern societies, pretty much all over the world, and it's increasing. Depends where you go. You don't see it in, in the Muslim countries. And you don't see it, at least in still the rural parts of India. I'm sure other places as well. But in most parts of the world, the advertisers to get our money so they can live in grand style and have their own sense gratification, they're constantly bombarding us. Now, even if you're not a consumer of modern media at all, still, if you go anywhere, there is going to be advertisements. You go to the shop, as Prabhupada was saying, he said, even in the tailor shop, there's some picture of a man and a woman in the window. And what to speak of if we're trying to preach in the modern world. So to defend ourselves, we have to at least make an endeavor to remove these things from our senses and not to contemplate them. That if such thoughts enter the mind or such images enter the eye or such sounds enter the ear, we should let them go, just like the rivers flow into the ocean, which is always being filled, but is always still. And of course, we also have to depend on Krishna. If we think, by my own effort, I'm going to avoid becoming attached and lusty to the sense objects with my mind, then we are fools. Uh, Because 
we're dealing with a divine energy and we're dealing with Krishna's energy it's not by our own strength and our own power that's the view of the yogis by my own strength and my own power I will control the mind but that's, that's not our process that's bhakti yoga is we're depending on Krishna we are making an effort to control the mind undoubtedly but we are also depending on Krishna we know that without dependence on Krishna our attempts will be a failure and there's so many examples Vishwamrita Muni of course is the main example that Srila Prabhupada gives that he was making an attempt to protect his mind to defend his mind with mystic yoga practice but he, just, he didn't even see the woman he just heard some jewelry and his, he thought oh is that a woman? <laughs> You know, could have even been something else. But he thought, oh, is that a woman? And so then his mind became unprotected. Are there times that we just depend on Krishna and we don't make any effort at all to defend our own mind? Uh, that may be the case in some diseases. Just like I was saying, one of my grandchildren became delirious from high fever. And I, I remember it was 2000, 2001, when I was had a very bad ear and throat infection, had a, and I had a very high fever, and I also became delirious. I started hallucinating, and I, I wasn't actually able, with my own strength, to control my mind at all. Not at all. It was just I was going in and out of consciousness, and I, I was my mind was no longer, in any extent, under my control. So all I could do was depend on Krishna. You know, all, I, all I could do was, was chant. And, uh, it's just there was there's nothing. There was nothing else to do, but to chant. And we have. I was thinking also about the devotees in the Soviet Union, who some of them were imprisoned and put in psychiatric hospitals, where they were injected with drugs that would affect the mind. And in such a case, there's nothing you can do to protect your own mind. So in such a case, you just, Krishna, you know, I'm dependent on you, whatever you want to do with my mind. Then with the intelligence, when do we both depend on Krishna and defend our own intelligence? So I was thinking about Mukunda, who Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was angry at him because he would associate with the devotees, but then he would go and hear from the impersonalists. And he said, because of this, I will not associate with him. So we have a duty to defend our own intelligence by not hearing atheistic and Mayavadi philosophies that will pollute our intelligence. We have a duty and a responsibility to listen to and meditate on proper philosophy from proper sources. And this is our responsibility. It's not simply that we should say, well, I'm just going to read anything and listen to anything and that Krishna will protect me. But at the same time, of course, we also have to depend on Krishna. We have to depend on Krishna uh, to protect our intelligence, to know what it is we should listen to or not, to be able to discern, which is the function of the intelligence, to be able to discern who is a proper person to hear from and who is not a proper person to hear from. So in such situations, uh, we certainly have to both depend on Krishna and defend ourselves. Another example, of course, is when, just like when I prepare to give a class, 
So many of us, when we're preparing to preach, when we're speaking about Krishna, we exclusively depend on Krishna. Krishna, you please give me the intelligence. You please guide my intelligence so that I can speak on that which is relevant to my audience. When I teach people how to preach, we really focus on relevance to the audience. What can people take home and use? What, can they, what is valuable to them? not just some theory up in the sky. And to some extent, there's external means that one can use to find out what's relevant to people, one can get to know the people to whom one is speaking, and so forth. But ultimately, one has to depend on the Lord in the heart to know what it is that people need to hear and what it is that's going to benefit them. So that dependence on Krishna is there. What will actually benefit my listeners and myself? What should I look at? You know, just like in looking at this verse today, it wasn't until I started to give the class that I realized that there was another theme that I could have spoken on, and that is that we make our plans and then we get interrupted by the needs of others. So I could have spoken on that instead of uh, defend and and depend and defend. So what's the theme I'm going to speak on? That I have to depend on Krishna. I have to depend on Krishna to reveal what are the many themes in the verse I have to depend on Krishna to reveal what theme I'm going to speak on. I mean, another theme that comes out of this verse is the difference between Krishna's protection of the non-devotees and Krishna's protection of the devotees, which is something that Srila Prabhupada is emphasizing in this particular purport. So, rather, I chose to speak on how the devotees are exclusively dependent, which is also something that Prabhupada spoke about in the purport. So, you know, to, to find what are the ideas and to pick what idea to speak on and then to take that, you know, like I decided to divide this into body, mind, intelligence, false ego, and spiritual life. You know, how to divide it. That one depends on Krishna. Krishna, please reveal. But also one is making an effort. One is sitting down and making some effort and looking through the scriptures and praying to Krishna. Krishna, please show me the right place to go. Give me the right quote. Give me the... the Please enliven my intelligence. But we're also making an endeavor to defend our intelligence, to protect our intelligence. Another example I was thinking is Baladev Vijabhushana, that he was trying to defend not only his intelligence, but he was trying to defend the intelligence of the Sampradaya. And in that, he was depending on Govinda, and plus he was also using his own he was also using his own protection, both. And he had, of course, Govinda transmitted to him the Govinda Bhastya. Is there a time when we only depend, when we don't make any effort to defend our intelligence? And I thought that's really when one surrenders to a guru. And Prabhupada really emphasizes that before surrendering to a guru, that one should te- thoroughly test the guru. But once surrendering to a guru that one should just surrender. Now, of course, we should add a caveat that there are also instructions for what to do if the guru deviates, how to deal with the guru in the situation if the guru deviates. But in general, you can think of it just like a doctor. So if you have some disease symptoms, or even you know, nowadays people go to a doctor just for a checkup, so let's say you feel completely healthy and you go to a doctor for a checkup, and the doctor says to you, oh, I see that there's this tumor in your stomach. 
and you, you know you're going to die in a year if we don't get it operated so in such a situation how, to what extent can you be defending and protecting your own intelligence I mean, you can get a second opinion you can do some research as you can be defending your intelligence to some extent but at a certain point you totally depend on the doctor there comes a point when after defending your own intelligence to find out if the doctor's bona fide and looking at all your at a certain point you let go and you say okay doctor you do whatever you want with me and in modern medicine with anesthesia and by the way total anesthesia has not been available at all times in human society but with uh, total anesthesia you're completely depending you're not defending your intelligence at all in in a very literal sense so the doctor gives you some kind of medication that blocks out your intelligence and mind completely you enter into like deep sleep and in that state you are depending 100% on the intelligence of the doctor so in a similar way the devotee with the spiritual master depends 100% you become my intelligence you guide me with your intelligence you show me you you give me the light om agyana timirandasya gananjana shalakaya takshunumali tandena tasmai shri gurave namaha so then we're going to look at false ego and pride is there any time when we should both depend on krishna and defend our false ego and pride and the answer is no when it comes to false ego and pride there should be no defense at all ever we just simply never defend our false ego and pride in fact defending our false ego and pride is the job of the material mind and intelligence and is the whole cause of all of our problems now it's interesting that once one makes a determination never to defend or protect their false ego and pride one becomes aware of how much energy most human beings put into doing exactly that the vast majority if not nearly all of our arguments and contentions between husband and wife parents and children employers and employees customers and businesses citizens and governments governments and governments is all false ego and pride let me defend my false ego and pride how dare you say that i have any fault how dare you say that i've done anything wrong i am great and you are not if one makes a determination i am going to do zero defense of my false ego and pride one gets great peace as far as our reputation fame infamy leave that 100% to krishna without even asking krishna anything nothing and krishna says such a devotee is very dear to him a devotee who's not attached to honor and dishonor fame and infamy auspicious inauspicious things friends enemies all of that is pride and egoism and if we want the grace of of the lord we have to just be completely callous in the most gross sense of the term to honor and dishonor fame and infamy friends and enemies you like me you don't like me 
you honor me, you dishonor me, you lie about me, it doesn't matter. Now, of course, we might say that the devotees sometimes may defend their honor if they're representing the Sampradaya, but then they're defending the honor of the Sampradaya, not their own honor. Again, Baladeva Jibhusham with the Govinda Basya. So one certainly has to defend one's guru in the Sampradaya, and that may look externally like one is defending one's own honor, Uh, but factually it is not. But generally, 99.9% of the time, we may think we're defending this or that. That's not us. But really, we're just defending us. So I think of a, a few nice instances of where the devotees just do zero defense for their pride and ego, even if they're falsely accused, even if they're in the right. And one, one of my favorite stories is that they're at the Atra, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's there, and Maharaj Pradipurudra is trying to see Lord Chaitanya dancing. Srivas is also trying to see Lord Chaitanya dancing, and without realizing it, he's standing in front of King Pratyaparudra and blocking the view of the king. So Hari Chandra Prabhu, thinking that both Srivas Thakur and Maharaj Pratyaparudra should be able to see Lord Chaitanya, is very gently touching Srivas Thakur and very politely saying, please step aside, please step aside. And he's doing this repeatedly. But Srivas Thakur is so absorbed in watching Mahaprabhu dance that he, he doesn't really hear Harish Chandra. All he's aware of is that somebody keeps poking him and tapping him. And if someone pokes us and taps us repeatedly, we may become annoyed. So he became annoyed, and he turned and slapped Hari Chandra. Then Hari Chandra was about to speak to defend his ego. Why are you slapping me? I'm just trying to do something for the king. But the king stopped him, and he said, Hari Chandra, it's a great mercy to be slapped by Srivas Thakur. I wish that I could be touched by the lotus hand of Srivas Thakur. And that way he pacified the whole situation. No, don't defend your ego. Another incident is Maharaj Chitraketu. Maharaj Chitraketu was not insulting Lord Shiva at all. He was simply astonished and amazed. Wow! <laughs> Lord Shiva is such a great personality that while he's talking to sages, he's keeping his wife on his lap and embracing her. You know, who else can do that but Lord Shiva? And Parvati took offense. Shiva didn't take offense. The sages didn't take offense. In fact, they took it as a glorification of Shiva's greatness. But Parvati took it that Chitraketu was insulting Shiva, which he wasn't. And she said, you become a demon. And he said, yes, mother whatever you want. And Lord Shiva said, here's the greatness of the devotees. Here's the greatness of the devotees. They're not going to defend their false ego and their pride. They're not going to say, well, I wasn't, I didn't do, I was just doing, no, just accept it. Uh, Just accept it. I think uh, another incident with Srivas Thakur is when the local brahmanas were envious of of his fame put outside of his doorstep at night all these articles for worshipping goddess Durga. And there was a, some ill feeling between the Vaishnavas and the Shaktas. Each considered the other low class. So to be revealed, I mean, it'd be like in our modern Vaishnav Sanghas if you revealed that somebody was actually a Mayavadi, you know. So 
Shiva's Thakur, when he got up in the morning and he saw the stuff, he said, now all of you can understand my real position. You can understand that during the day, I say I'm a Vaishnava, but at night I'm worshipping Bhavani. Not only did he not defend his pride and ego, but he admitted it. There wasn't even anything to admit. He hadn't done anything wrong. But he said, yes, you're right. I've done something wrong. And then he was immediately defended by the other men in the city who cleaned up everything and so forth. We have people like Lord Rishabh Dave, Judd Bharat, Mars Yudhisthira at the end of his life, who even people would insult them by throwing stool and urine at them and calling them ill names. And they, 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 pay, they made no attempt whatsoever to defend themselves or to defend their ego and their pride. So the devotee basically, uh, with some rare exceptions, they never defend their false ego and pride. Never. They just don't do it. Krishna wants to have people think well of me, fine. They do. This is the Trinadapi verse, of course, Trinadapi Suhi And only when we 100% give up any and all attempts or desires to defend our false ego and pride are we able to chant the holy name of the Lord, actually chant the pure holy name of the Lord. In that case, we totally depend on Krishna. You want to embrace me, you want to crush me, you want the world to criticize me and everyone to hate me, and you want everyone to hate me unjustly. I haven't done anything wrong, and still everybody will falsely accuse me. It doesn't matter. Of course, if the devotee is still disturbed by such things, one can meditate on the pastime of Krishna and the Shamantaka jewel. Now we're going to look at spiritual life. When do we depend on Krishna and defend our spiritual life. So we have Jiva Goswami who defended his uncles, Rupa and Sanatan, in a debate. So he defended their spiritual standing at the same time he was depending on Krishna. We have, of course, the that was defending others, others' spiritual life. We have Lord Chaitanya who was about to attack Jagai and Madhai because they were going to harm Lord Nityananda. So that's, again, defending others' spiritual life. Another interesting thing about defending spiritual life is Prahlad preaching to his father and his friends. So that was a very dangerous thing to do, and and indeed Prahlad got uh, the punishment of his father for that. But he was actively defending spirituality, actively defending a spiritual life. Uh, The spiritual life of others and the spiritual life of, of, his, of himself. So we may be like Prabhupada would sometime, sometimes when he was invited to some program where there were also Mayavadis, if the Mayavadi was preaching against Krishna, Prabhupada would get up and have a kirtan. So the devotees may very actively defend the spiritual life of others, and they may actively defend their own spiritual life. Prahlad Maharaj in preaching to others was also very actively defending his own spiritual life while depending on Krishna, because... Frankly, I can only remember Krishna if Krishna allows me. I can only help others in their spiritual life if Krishna allows me. And then there's some times when one is totally dependent on the Lord for one's spiritual advancement. We think of Rukmini, who said to the Lord, if you won't kidnap me and marry me now, then I'll, I'll just do austerities and wait life after life until you're ready to accept me. The devotee is not demanding and Mukunda, when Lord Chaitanya said, I will see you in 10 million births, and he was just dancing. Yes, Lord, I depend on you. Whenever you want to see me, um, you can see me or not. 
So we've examined when we uh, defend with dependence on Krishna and when we don't defend at all and simply have dependence on Krishna. Then we have our last question. When we say depend on Krishna, whether we're also defending or whether we're not also defending, what does that mean? Does that mean that, like Uttara is about to do here, that we ask Krishna? Or does that mean that we say nothing? Well, that really depends. Sometimes Prabhupada says that the devotee never asks Krishna for any kind of protection. Another time Prabhupada will say that the devotee will only ask Krishna. In other words, not ask anybody else, but the devotee will ask Krishna. Here we see Uttara asking Krishna when Indra was about to flood Vrindavan. We see all the devotees going to Krishna and asking Krishna for protection. So we do see that devotees do. The pure devotees, the pure devotees in Goloka Vrindavan, uh, here is devotee in Dwarka. They do ask Krishna for protection, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. With Maharaj Ambarish, we don't have any indication that he was asking for protection. With Prahlad Maharaj, we don't have any indication that he was directly asking for protection. So we cannot say that one is always right and one is always wrong. It really depends on the particular mood and circumstances. We can say, however, that if one feels that one wants to ask for protection, you ask it from Krishna. It shouldn't be artificial. So if you do care, if it does matter to you whether there's protection or not, then certainly ask Krishna. Don't pretend to Krishna that you don't care. But if it really doesn't matter to you, if, you know, if I'm protected in this situation or not, it doesn't matter. Then there's no need to even ask, is there? So that depends. One has to look at one's own internal mood. But asking Krishna for protection cannot, we cannot say that is absolutely wrong. Now, that is happening here and it happens in many other circumstances with great devotees that even they ask Krishna's protection for themselves, not only for others. And they may ask Krishna's protection for themselves uh, in many circumstances. I mean, this, again, going back to Bhaktivinoda prayers of Sharanagati, where he has these four prayers of asking for protection. The Lord is my soul protector. Right? He is he's saying like this. He's saying, your lotus feet will certainly shelter me. There are no other protectors in this world and birth and death. In my life of independence from you, I've experienced nothing but misery. But now upon accepting those feet of yours, all my miseries have been cast away. Those, your lotus feet will surely deliver Bhaktivinoda from the dangerous perils of this worldly journey. So he's, you know, he's, he's doing this. Oh, interesting also here about false pride. He says, surrendering my soul and she has lifted me from the burden of false pride. No longer will I try to provide for my own safety. In other words, I will not try to protect anymore my ego. So we should always depend on Krishna for all protection and only Krishna. Even when we are making efforts for our own defense of our body or the bodies of others, our minds or the minds of others, our intelligence or the intelligence of others, our spiritual life or the spiritual life of others, even when we're making some endeavor ourselves, even then we know that Krishna is the only protector. Whatever endeavor I can make is only by his grace, by his will, and by his ability. So whether I am in additionally acting as an instrument 
or whether I am I am doing nothing other than saying, Lord, I depend on you. In either case, the Lord is my only protector. The Lord is my only protector. I do not see anyone else as my protector. And as Prabhupada mentions in today's purport, if one has this mood that only the Lord is my protector, no one else is my protector, then the Lord especially looks after us, exactly like the parent gives more thought and care and protection to the young child than they do to the older child, because the young child has no other source of protection. Thank you, all glories to Srila Prabhupada. Questions, comments, etc. Um, Mother Ramal, it seems that maybe there's cases where uh, um, it may seem as if we're protecting our own false ego, but say for the sake of preaching, if we're falsely accused of something, then we may have to speak in our in our defense. Yes, yeah, sometimes. But be careful. I think many times we may use that as an excuse. Uh, but sometimes that may be there. It may be that, you know, uh, we are representing our guru, we're representing the movement, and if there is some false accusation against us, it will hurt the preaching. But we should be very careful. The vast majority of the time that we're defending our ego and our pride, the only thing we're defending is our ego and our pride with so many excuses. What about, um, you, you just touched briefly on, on um, uh, sort of like almost like an absolute faith that Prahlad had when he didn't pray at all for Krishna. He just assumed, he just, just knew that Krishna would protect him as opposed to others that will sometimes pray to Krishna for protection. Could you speak more on that? Because sometimes I'm not sure whether to pray to Krishna to protect or just... Well, I'm not... I, I don't think one's better than the other. I think it's just different. So... And I see it as a question of the particular devotee and the particular circumstances and the rasa. We are individuals. You know, we really are individuals. And we're in individual circumstances. And there may be some situations where it matters more to me for whatever reason. And I may say to Krishna, please protect me. Please protect me. And there are other circumstances where it's I can more say, you know. I mean, one is please protect me, but if you don't want to protect me, that's fine. I accept. Uh, but I, have, I may have a preference. And there's other times when, frankly, I don't have a preference. There may be times when I can say, Krishna, whatever. I don't even say Krishna, whatever. My feeling is whatever. It doesn't matter to me at all whether something is protected or not protected. And there may be other times where it does matter to me. But even then, it's up to Krishna. I, I, I trust Krishna. That Krishna, I have some care here. I, it matters to me whether my kid lives or dies, but it's up to you. And... Even when the devotee is asking for protection, their mood is always, Krishna, it's up to you. It's up to you whether you protect me or not from an external position. And it's up to you how you protect me. When we say the devotee is confident of Krishna's protection, the devotee is not confident that Krishna will protect them in an external way according to some preconceived notion. 
you know, our bodies are going to die. That's for sure. So it, it's it's not like that. Even when the devotees are asking, it's in that mood. I, I don't I don't see scripture from a sadhu shastra guru. I don't see that one is superior to the other. Now, of course, we will have later on in this chapter where Queen Kunti asks to sever her tie of affection for her kinsman. And Srila Prabhupada, in commenting on that verse, says that when you're a householder, you have an obligation to take care of your family. And therefore, because of that obligation, you may also feel obligated to ask the Lord for things that you wouldn't ask Him just for yourself. And he talked about how Kunti was in a funny position because if Krishna stays in Hastinapur, then he's with her sons. But if he, but he's away then from her relatives in Dwarka. And if he goes to Dwarka, he's with that set of relatives and away from another set of relatives. And she was very bewildered that she cared about both of her relatives. She wanted both of her sets of relatives to be with Krishna. And so she wanted to have no attachment to her relatives so she could say to Krishna, you just go wherever you want to go. So there, there is some, there is in that context, one could say that it's higher to just say, okay, Krishna, whatever you want, I don't have any preference. And Kunti was certainly thinking like that in her prayers. At the same time, we do see that the residents of Vrindavan are asking for Krishna's protection in the spiritual world, even or in their, at least in their pastimes manifest in Boma Vrindavan, they are certainly asking for protection. And those are the people who are situated at the highest possible platforms of prema. So to make a statement that it's always lower cannot possibly be accurate. It's got to be according to one's particular individual circumstance and mood. So to make some sort of general preaching that this is always higher is, is not correct. I'm sorry, it's the best I can do. Hopefully someone also have a question. That I guess there's a very healthy component when when we're put in a situation where we have to depend on Krishna. I was just thinking when you mentioned Queen Kunti, there's the other famous verse where she says, um, She's praying, let, the, let these calamities come again and again, because when I'm put in a calamitous situation, then I have to depend upon you. And in this way, I will not see the repetition of birth and death. So we can really relish the fact when often things are going so smooth and so perfectly and all of a sudden Krishna puts us in this terrible situation we've got to depend on Krishna to protect us to help us and that's that's a very healthy thing and Queen Kunti uh, gives evidence of that thank you anybody else? Um, yeah, I have a question and so does Harsh but uh, I'm sorry did anyone else have anything? Um, yes Armala um, Prabhu uh, um, I had a question mine um, is what if someone is uh, attacking um, our devotional service or um, are uh, getting in the way or um, interfering with uh, our devotional service. An example would be if, um, well, when I first joined uh, the temple, uh, I went out with the devotees in Harinam and um, some man came and uh, attacked the devotees. So um, the so that was actually getting uh, in the way of our service of 
Harinam Sankirtan, or someone could uh, attack a devotee that is uh, out distributing books. And so, um, uh, um, anyway, on the Harinam, the devotee actually that was leading the Kirtan, I mean, he didn't um, uh, respond heavily, but he kind of pushed uh, the non-devotee with the madunga, you know, for, to push him out of the way and get him to stop. And so um, if someone is packing our service to Lord Krishna, is um, that the, I mean, what would one do in a situation like that? Maybe, you, were, you know, we're feeling like, uh, oh, it's, you know, I don't need to defend myself, but someone's actually... Uh, um, interfering with uh, devotional service. Well, first of all, I would beg to differ with, with your assessment of that, and those who did not defend their own body were Ambarish with Jirvasamuni, Prahlad with his father, Haridas with the government. So that's on the bodily platform. As far as somebody attacking our spiritual life, and do we defend our spiritual life? Uh, there I talked about Prahlad who defended his spiritual life by preaching to his father and friends, and to his friends that he, was, he wasn't simply passive. And uh, Lord Chaitanya, who attacked Jagai Madai, Jiva Goswami, who defended his uncles in the debate. So there are times when we would actively defend our spiritual life. And then I gave the example of Rukmini and Mukunda, who, uh, who Rukmini said to Krishna, if you're not going to kidnap me, she didn't say, well, I'm going to, you know, she did take some effort. She wrote this letter that was taking some effort to defend and protect her spiritual life. But she wrote in the letter, this is all I'm going to do. If, if after this letter you don't kidnap me, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to do more. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to do austerities, which I suppose you could say that's a kind of doing something. But I'm just going to do austerities and wait. And whenever you want to come and give me spiritual life, even if it's many, many lifetimes from now. And, and Mukunda had the same mood. So I see that as far as our spiritual life goes, we do make efforts to defend our spiritual life. And part of our efforts to defend our spiritual life, waking up early, making sure we have you know, a nice time for our sadhana and so forth, and, and depending on Krishna for when Krishna wants to come and reveal himself to us, and we may be in some circumstances where we can't even do anything for our spiritual life. We may be in some circumstances, you know, you're in the hospital with a tube down your throat and so forth. And all you can do is say, you know, Krishna save me. Krishna come to me. I can't do anything. So that may, that may be the case. Thank you for asking that. Anybody else? Uh, yes, Arsh. Arsh Krishna. Actually, Bhattaji, could you just hold on just one second so we can get Harsh's question in? Sure. Okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, Harsh, you should be unmuted. Why don't you try? Can you say something? 
They're only be, they're trying to be their own protector. And the, the karma mimamsa philosophy is thinking that the means of our maintenance and protection, the means of our happiness in the world is mechanical. And, and in fact, this is one of the main ways in which the demons think. You'll find that the demons will perform yagyas and even perform pious activities to get power. They'll do austerity. They think the power is in the actions themselves. They think the power of protection is in doing this and this austerity. They see the world as very mechanical. They don't see the world as personal. They, they, they think it has no cause other than lust, as Krishna says. The, the view of the demon is that the means of protection are mechanical means. The means of strength and ability are mechanical means. There's the universe is a machine, the body is a machine, and if you just know how to work the machine, then you can be protected. And the devotee sees everything as personal and sees, yes, there's a machine, but the machine is operated by a person, and getting proper protection is not just a matter of knowing how to work the machine, but it's also having the grace and the cooperation with the person. And that ultimately there's a person in charge of the machine. So even when a devotee is using the machine of the body and the machine of the world in order to do their duties of defending, they're doing it in harmony with the person who's ultimately running the machine. They're not doing it thinking that the machine is dependent from its ultimate operator. Kshetramam chapimam vidhi sarvikshetrishubharatakshetrikshetradayorganam that in addition to myself as the owner of the field, there's another owner. And the devotee sees that there is also another owner, that things are not just mechanical. Is that right? Okay, thank you very much. Okay, Maharani, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, Mother Irmala, thank you for this class. It was um, just an excellent class and my question you may have addressed it I'm not sure there was some hard rain but um, I I have a tendency to tell people and devotees that whatever is happening to them is their karma and like uh, when I had a, a classroom full of children and some were sick I couldn't actually could not isolate the sick ones from the not sick ones and other parents would complain and I would say look I cannot isolate them it's just me and if your kids if your child gets sick then it's just their karma because that was the situation okay that that's not um, that wasn't a very favorable attitude others didn't appreciate that but anyway the other part of it is if you're destined to die in a year 
if you have an operation that isn't that, that doesn't help so what why bother to go through the operation if you're if you're going to die in a year you're going to die in a year whether you have the operation or not so that's what i'm kind of asking about like how much can i just say look this is your karma Oh, okay, that's this I I don't think and although that's certainly related to today's topic, it's that opens up a whole other realm as to how much of what we're experiencing is due to actions we've done in the past that cannot be changed in the present and how to what extent can we change our destiny in the present. So there's several answers to that. One is that some of what we are suffering in this life is due to actions we're performing now. It's not that every single detail of our life was decided at our birth or before our birth. That's that's not accurate. Just like if I eat too much for breakfast, then I'll get a stomachache. That's that wasn't decided by something I did 5 lifetimes ago. That's decided by something I'm doing right now. If I go to you and insult you and then you insult me back, I did that right now. Now you can say my tendency to eat too much or my tendency to be rude is coming from something in the past life perhaps, okay? And coming from my the family that I'm born into which is dependent on my past life and so it, it it's very difficult to completely tease out and say Okay, I'm, there's something in this life that's entirely 100% dependent on a choice in this life. I, I don't I don't know if you could do that. You know, people who smoke are more likely to get certain diseases than people who don't. Duh, you know, and that's a this life choice. Now again, our this life choices are affected by our past life choices. But we still have choices in this life that affect this life. There you can definitely make choices in this life that affect this life and you can make cho- you can say it's the kids karma whether they get sick or not. Okay, yeah, that's true, but you can still have the kids wash their hands and you can have them cough into their elbows and you know, there's there's things you can do that will also affect this life. I mean, ultimately, we're not the control. It's like here, some of the kids have gotten very sick and some of the kids haven't gotten sick at all. And some have gotten mildly sick. So but that does that mean that you don't clean your house? You, know, you just say, well, I'm not going to clean the house because if anybody gets sick, that's their karma. I mean, that's that's some kind of madness. So we do try to eat healthy food and we do follow hygienic principles. Prophet says that in the Shastra. He says if one follows hygienic principles, he will not fall sick. You know, that's that's what it is. You know, if, if you don't clean up your kitchen and you don't take out your trash, you're going to have a lot more cockroaches than if you do. Now, if, you, you know, if you're in Hawaii, you're going to have cockroaches no matter what you do. But how many cockroaches? Where are they going to be? That's going to depend on your cleanliness. As far as when we're going to die, that's interesting. Prabhupada talks about how that medical treatment is not going to prolong your lifespan, but he said it can make you be uh, happier and, and healthier in your life. He talked about that in regard to a heart transplant. He said if you get a heart transplant, you're not going to live any longer than you were destined, but it may cure some disease during your lifespan. So we do definitely, I mean, the Vedas have provisions for treatment of disease. Our Vedic philosophy is not 
we do not say you don't take any medicine, you don't make any provision for disease, and whatever's going to happen is destiny. We don't say that. So our lifespan, by the way, lifespan is not number of years. Lifespan is number of heartbeats and number of breaths. So even in terms of years of life, that can also be affected. Probably gives the example that during sex, your heartbeat and your breathing are accelerated. And therefore, your lifespan is decreasing. And Prabhupada also gives the example that the yogis, the way that the yogis increase their duration of life is they slow down their breathing and their heartbeat. And this is one reason why exercise increases your duration of life. Because even though while you're exercising, your heartbeat and your breathing increase, that by exercising, you make your lungs and your heart work more efficiently. And therefore, you, your, heart, your general heart rate is slower. So there are certainly things you can do in this life that will change your duration of life in terms of years. They're without any doubt about it at all. And there's things you can do in your mentality that will affect your disease and so forth. So certain things may be set from previous lives that nothing you do in this life may change. And the analogy I give for that is that there are certain crimes for which there's a set sentence and nobody can change it. There's a mandatory minimum sentence. It doesn't matter how good of a prisoner you are or this or that, that's it. And then there are other crimes for which the punishment is variable and may be adjusted. You may be put in, You may have a sentence to be in prison for 20 years, but you can maybe get out after five years for good behavior on parole. We're just talking right now about the law of karma, not devotees. So as far as even non-devotees, ordinary people... Some of their karma is set, and no matter what they do in this life, that's what they're going to experience. And it seems that the vast majority of karma is not like that. That it's some general provision which can also be adjusted at the present time. Where you can, you can get paroled early, you can have some change made to your sentence even after the sentence is given. And what to speak of for the devotees. So for the devotees, even the mandatory minimum sentence can be adjusted by Krishna. He may do that, he may not do that. That's, that's up to him. So yes, everything we are getting, what we can say, instead of saying everything we're getting is our karma, we can say that everything we're getting is according to the laws of nature. I think that would be a more accurate way to put it. That whatever we're experiencing is happening according to universal law. It's not random. And some of our reactions to universal law is because of something I did 200, 300 lifetimes ago, and some of my reactions to universal law is something I did two minutes ago. There's, and there's a, a combination of those. There's a working together, what I've done in the, in the past. You know, we give the example, you buy a ticket to Paris, then you're on the plane to Paris, you know, mid-air, you're not going to change your destination except with a gun to the pilot's head, in which case, you know, you may not like where you change that destination. But you also have different ways of behaving on the plane. So there's some freedom even within that unchangeable destiny. And certainly once you land in Paris, then you have a lot of other options, but your options start from Paris. So there's certain things... I mean, certain things like whether you're male or female, you know, notwithstanding the modern attempts to change from one gender to another, they're not really effective. You can't, modern medicine has not figured out how to change a man into a woman or a woman into a man, actually. You're not a functional, fertile 
uh, member of the opposite sex. You don't have proper sexual function, nor do you have a reproductive function. So they can't, of course, in Vedic times they could. They could change a man into a woman or a woman into a man, actually. But that's something that there you are, you know, you've, you've got this, you're male or female, and that's what, the, what it is. And there's really nothing you can do in this life that's going to actually alter it. You can pretend to alter it somewhat. You can dress like a member of the opposite sex. You can shade, you can, you know, have sexual orientation towards a member of your same sex. You can have surgery and take hormones, but you can't really change it. You have to work within that. Uh, the same with what race you are. The same with the fact that you're a human being. I mean, you can have plastic surgery so that you look like a lizard, but you don't. You can't really become a lizard. You have to function from the human body. So there are certain. And you're on the Earth planet. You know what are you going to do? Here we are on the Earth planet. You can't say, well, by my actions in this life, this life I'm going to live on Venus. You know, sorry. <laughs> This life you're going to live on the earth planet. So there's certain things that are just, you just got to deal with them. Like them, don't like them, doesn't matter. For the duration of this life, you're just going to have to deal with it. But there's many things that are somewhat flexible. And there are some things that are entirely flexible. Some things that we're changing on a minute-to-minute basis. And that's, I think, all of our experience. To say that every single iota and, and minutia of our life is determined at the time of birth so there's no astrologer or palmist that would agree with such a, a theory anything else we could take one more thank you so much sure okay does anyone have one last question I uh, yeah I have a question Dandavat Nirmaladidi Dandavat the End of the purport today, the Lord protects everyone, but one who depends completely upon him is especially looked after by the Lord. And a beautiful analogy, the Father protecting the fully dependent little son. Uh, So, a few verses come to mind. I envy no one, nor am I partial to anyone. I am equal to all, but one who, whoever renders service unto me in devotion is a friend, is in me, and I'm also a friend to him. And then Ramananda Roy says to Lord Chaitanya, Lord Krishna has made a firm promise for all time. If one renders service unto him, Krishna correspondingly gives him an equal amount of success and devotional service to the Lord. And uh, then he quotes 411 from the Gita, as, as they surrender to me, I reward them accordingly. Everyone follows my path in all respects. So, the question that came to me some years ago, and, and, it, and it resurfaced, one of the other devotees here asked the question, was that Krishna, he gives his mercy to somebody who fully surrenders. I mean, according to these verses, there's a gradation. But there's something special. I think there's some special mercy that comes when one fully surrenders. Could you say something about that? 
It sounds like you already said everything wonderful about that. Think about in our own human relations. We've all been in a situation where someone's come to us for help. Or let's say, let's take it even further. We've all been in a situation where there's someone who needs help. And we may understand that they need help, and we may understand very clearly what help they need. Some of those people don't come to us at all. They make no effort to come to us. And if we attempt to go to them, they repulse our efforts. So we may care about them, and we may care about them having a nice result, but we're not really in a position of doing much for them because they're denying us that ability. Then you have some people who come to us for help, but they don't really want our help. As soon as we try to give them any kind of help, again, they reject it. They may even become angry at our offer of help. Then we have people who come to us for help, and they partially want our help. They're interested in what we have to say. They're willing to consider it, or what we have to offer. They'll use part of our offer, but not the other part of it. Um, and they may be grateful for something, etc., then we have people who may just say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm willing to let you guide me whatever you want. I was giving the example of the doctor also. You know, once you're under anesthesia, you're fully under the control of that doctor. And we all have instances of where we depend on a doctor, not at all, or we depend fully or somewhere in between. So Krishna as the Purusha, as a supreme male, has, gets great pleasure out of maintaining and protecting his parts and parcels. That is the enjoyment of the Purusha. You know, whatever pleasure we get from maintaining and protecting people, which is very pleasurable. Uh, of course, that pleasure we get on the material level is very much mixed with envy and pride. That I have more knowledge than you, I have more resources than you, and therefore I am protecting you, poor, pitiable thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a real, I'm superior to you kind of mood that's mixed with it. But we get a lot of pleasure. Uh, that's also, you know, something genuine of being the instrument for somebody else's happiness. Although, again, our mood like that is mixed with envy. If we're a conditioned soul. So that's the mood of the Purusha. You know, in a traditional society the man was maintaining and protecting the wife. And that was his pleasure. If he felt that his wife doesn't, didn't need his protection and maintenance, he didn't feel energized as a man. And the parents feel like that with the children. If the children say, oh, I don't need you, I'm not going to listen to you, then the parents don't feel energized and enlivened as parents. So we're talking about pleasing Krishna. If we want to please Krishna, then we act as Prakriti. And Prakriti has this mood that I am, I am dependent on you. You are the one protecting me. You are the one maintaining me. And this gives Krishna so much pleasure. He so much likes to give to his parts and parcels. And one who sees that Krishna is the only protector, then Krishna gives everything. And this gives him great, great happiness. That's how Krishna enjoys as, as the Purusha. And that's how we then enjoy as Prakriti. 
that Purusha wants the Purusha wants to see that Prakriti is happy by their maintenance and protection. That's the mood of the Purusha. So Krishna wants he wants to give pleasure to us by maintaining and protecting us. And if we allow him to do so, then we bring him great happiness. All right, I think I need to end here. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.